0: We are in the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll deliver one to you. And we'll um, dig in. We, God willing, we'll take on the chapter. It's a gorgeous chapter of that. Read along with me if you would, please. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born to my house shall be heir. Then he brought him outside. Oh, the word of the Lord came to him first and said, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body will be your heir. And then he brought him outside and he said, Now look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, well, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. God's recipe. And he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle. And placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the volunteers, I'm sorry, the volunteers, <laughs> that tells you something, doesn't it? Sorry. When the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Volunteers he probably would have kept. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. That's always nice. but in the fourth generation they shall come here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch. It passed between the pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadbanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the and the Jebusites. Will you pray with me, please? All right, Lord, so we're looking at something roughly 4,000 years ago, roughly a few thousand miles away. And we expect, because you wrote it, that this will be pertinent to our own lives, right where we're at at the moment. But Lord, we also know that your word is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the intent of the thoughts of our heart, God, you are able to do everything you want to do here. And as the snow falls down to the ground, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns to you empty, but accomplishes what you desire. God, we expect your word to work, to do what you intend. Jesus, you promised when your Holy Spirit has come, and he has come, that he would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We expect your Holy Spirit to do his work. I'm so thankful you never take a day off. You never sleep. You never slumber. It appears as if you never blink for that matter. Thank you for that, because you hold all things together by your powerful word, and I'm really glad that we're not constantly trying to see you put things back together. But rather, Lord, even in our own lives, what we've dissembled in seeking your absence, we've found that instead of you just simply trying to reconnect all of the dots, you've actually allowed us to start over and made us a new creation. And thank you, you didn't just write that whoever came to you, Jesus, is a new creation at that moment, but you read whoever is in you is currently a new creation, that we continue to be incessantly made new. And for that, God, I thank you because I find myself constantly in need of your newness. And I thank you for that. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is the one who brings wisdom and teaches us all things. Jesus, you taught us that. So, Father, I pray right now that you would get me out of your way, make me no obstacle, no road bump, no impediment, but rather your vehicle, your tool, your jersey, and put me on now and do what I cannot humanly do. First immerse me, God, in your spirit, that I would disappear and they would see you. And then, God, fill me to overflowing, that this precious fellowship would be doused in your presence. And that joy overflowing, you promise the fullness of joy. That Your presence would manifest and that your word would come alive for each of us speaking to us individually as well as corporately. God, that you would minister where we're at. You know where we're at. You know every marriage. You know every personal situation. You know every strength, every weakness. You know those things we beg you for at these moments and these things that we should be but we're not. And God, I pray that even as you know every vapor of water in our breath and every speck of dust under our shoes, God, and you know us that intimately, now speak may we have the most fun we've ever had in your word and be ministered to the most. Perform every bit of therapy you've intended in this time. And I thank you. So I commit every second of this to you. Redeem it, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would, any please don't just believe me. Please don't assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have its final say. Uh, That one of the reasons I do that, by the way, is just because it's really, really important for me to recognize that I'm not the authority to anything. I've submitted myself to a God that you can't see. I recognize that unless, of course, you choose to manifest yourself in a way that you might recognize. And and therefore, it would be easy to be skeptical and say, well, what kind of submission or checks and balances is there? Well, you have an entire book for which I am held accountable to and so you know, and I humbly ask for your prayer in it, I would say in your own time, read through First Timothy 3, Titus 2, and see the requirements that God expects, vast, vast, vast majority of them to be character and to be in prayer for your pastor. Because Not because I'm in any sense of great struggle or anything like that, but to be honest, just because I'm human and I would love to serve you the very best I possibly could. Well, with that in mind, this is if we exclude this issue of Melchizedek. And by the way, that's the after these things that he just encountered. He just encountered two kings, if you remember, last week. And the two kings he's encountered was a king of this world, a king of, by the way, a place that means scorched or burning, a place called Sodom, and a king, by the way, we read as Melchizedek. Melech meaning um, king, and Zedek or Zedek meaning uh, righteousness. He's a king of righteousness, a king of Salem, a Shalem which means peace, And so, of course, there are many who want to argue things that I think are kind of silly to argue about. Is is this a pre-incarnation of Jesus? Is this God manifest? And might I just say, possibly. There you go. I mean, I I just want to make it as simple as I can. There are things that are, we have three terms we use, and they're very important. I think it brings a lot of clarity, at least in my life. There's biblical, there's extra-biblical, and then there's anti-biblical. Biblical Biblical means I just read it and I just say, well, that's exactly what it says. So there it is. Extra-biblical is actually not a bad thing. All that just means is it could fit within Scripture, and I'd say it fits within those boundaries. And with that in mind, you could say, well, I think he is. And A lot of the arguments we find are really on extra-biblical issues. In other words, God may make it clear in some things, and you can say, well, look at this text. In other words, you say, well, look at this text. And then you have two people arguing. And by the way, that, on the other hand, is sinful. And God is not one who's arguing over things, by the way, which divide brothers and sisters. I, I can tell you where I side on it, but in the end of it all, one thing's for sure is this man has encountered a guy who has no back or forward sort of write-up, you know, and you can kind of go wherever you want with it. And because of that, there's a radical amount of places. Now, anti-biblical means you say something and it just doesn't agree with Scripture, in which case we can say Well, eh, that kind of, that's off. That's kicked out. That's kicked off the island. The stuff that we do look at here, though, is three things we are sure of. Three different times we could be very confident that he's had some form of encounter with God. And that becomes a really fun thought. Because this one is quite enigmatic. If you, actually are in, well, if you really are analytical enough to look at it, there's some pretty bizarre things to look at in this. Uh, for what it's worth, go back to chapter 12 for, for a moment. Verse 1. And it tells us that the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and your father's house, to the land I will show you. Now, by the time we get to chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 7, um, it actually, Stephen gives his parasha. He will actually say that, Brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram. Uh, and for what it's worth, at least if, if Stephen is speaking the truth there, and we'll assume that he assumes he is that this means that God actually manifests in a visible way. Now, that's going to be something you're going to be stuck in a quandary, and that is, well, wait a minute, later on in text, we're going to read when by the time we get to the book of Exodus and God starts laying out His law, that no man can really see Him and live. But here's the good news. It's because God is the one who makes the laws, He has the opportunity anytime He wants to bend them. Now, I'm not telling you that in the sense that He's not held accountable to His laws, but because He's held the laws for the purpose of man... If God wants to choose a step beyond that, he's willing to do so. It's not a transgression for God to actually appear to someone and say, "Um, pardon me if I don't kill you. But one thing's interesting, and that is the the beginning of this man's journey was one where somehow, if Stephen be correct in Acts, that God actually was visible to him. What did he look like? That's a radical thought. I mean, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, it tells us that God holds the seas in the hollow of his hand. I mean, if you took all the water, uh, and, and that's the term there, it's the idea of the waters, that means all of the oceans, all of the seas, everything that drips from your faucet, and then we take all of the atmosphere and we put that into water, and anything else that could be construed as water anywhere else in the universe, it fits just in this little spot here. Now, if you cu- try this, cup your hand for a second, and just see how much water you really think you can hold, just in that little spot right there. And that's just, that's what, what by the way, that's what we read in regards to all of the oceans and everything fit right in that little spot. got go, go, like that, and it's like all of the water just flooded you. You even jumped. That was kind of fun. And then we read that God marked the universe by its expanse. Now that's a building term, and the idea of that is basically from your thumb to your pinky. So go like that, and now you're kind of Californian with us. Okay, Now, now You gotta wave, You gotta wave it a little bit. There you go. Okay, but that's not what they did. All right, and that's a measure, and that particular measure is called a span. Now, he didn't say just the galaxy, but he said all of the universe, that thing which we only can at the end of. And by the way, how do you find the end of a universe? What's on the other side of it? I mean, you kind of go, okay, we're at the end of the universe. Now there's, what, no empty space? I mean, where do you get to the end of that? It's kind of like, okay, there's a, you know, I don't get, I I just can't wrap my head around that thought. But, I mean, mean, we're just kind of going, well, we need to find some kind of line definitively. Why? Because if we don't, we have to admit there's something we just can't calculate. And that's okay with me because I'm not running the universe. I don't have to know where the ends of it are. And somehow, though, I can't find the ends of it, I'm somewhere, I mean, how do we even know that we've gotten to his thumb yet? You know, we're thinking, well, that's the end of the universe. God's like, you haven't gotten past my second knuckle. You know, and we, God's like, that, there you go. And I just think God's going, all right. And we're going, hmm, I think that's the end of it. And that's just his hand. And then we read, by the way, that he dwells, according to Hebrews, he dwells in inapproachable light. Do you know what that means? Have you ever been to a place where something is so bright that actually you can feel it? Now, I, now, I know that there is the lightest thing that I'm aware of as far as that we can kind of gauge sort of in everyday life is arc welding. And I have a friend who's a welder who was in a situation where they have those shields, you know, those big kind of RoboCop shields, you know, and he flipped up the shield for just a moment to go Psst, this quick thing, and it was so hot and so bright it melted his contacts onto his eyes. I mean, that's just to show you how bright it is. I mean, and if you've ever been in a situation where it's been really dark and the light goes on and you almost retract back, now, we read that God dwells in inapproachable light. Now, think about that for a second. He dwells in inapproachable light. What that means is, if God were actually up full wattage, we'd be like, I can't get near that! And that's just God. And then we read that His voice splinters the cedars of Lebanon. Which, which by the way, would actually start to rival the shard building. And I'd like you to consider the fact he's got these gigantic trees and all kinds of goes go, <clears throat> and they all just turn it. Now, for what it's worth, we've talked a little bit about it, but everything, and I don't want to get too bizarre in it, but everything has a resonance. In other words, everything, all of the molecules can line up and vibrate. If you, and the classic example of that is if you've ever had a wine glass and you've gone, uh, you've run your finger around it, now, the reason for that's quite simple is that the way that density, that when you do that, that actually is its natural resonance. Now, I'm not here going, ooh, kill the vibrations or anything, but the idea is if you did that and you took that particular pitch, ooh, and you went, ooh, and you got loud enough, you could break that glass. And you've probably seen singers do that. Now, the problem is if you don't know uh, the concepts of natural resonance then what happens is if they go, well, we're going to be a myth and we're going to try to prove this wrong because they've recorded it. You know, they've done it with a singer and then they go, well, we recorded it and now we're going to play the recording. Well, it, as long as it's loud enough and it's that pitch, it should break it either way. Well, if they can't actually get the pitch right, you can play it all day. It's not going to break. Now, for what it's worth, both the English and the Americans, the, that's the United States, Ian's, us, um, we're actually back in the 70s and 60s investigating with that oral warfare to the point because what they discovered is if everything had a natural vibration, that includes, if you'll pardon me for saying, your bowels. And if they could actually play that pitch strong enough, who's going to shoot a gun when you kind of get the idea? And the, the problem is what they found out ultimately was it was horribly impractical because if you actually... I mean, you kind of see it coming, gigantic speakers out there, and you're like, okay, this isn't really the place to shoot, you know. And, I mean, and so they realized it really cost way too much to be able to actually implement that type of warfare. But they became aware of it. And the reason I say that is when God goes, <clears throat> for a second, all he has to do is hit sort of that resonance of anything, and boom, everything just sort of sp- explodes into little splinters. Now, we kind of recognize, and the reason I say this, it's easy to forget who we're dealing with here. Infinite? immeasurable, inapproachable in and of Himself, fully, 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 holy, 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 who can drop His voice to a still, small whisper. I guess this is a God who knows how to have an inside voice. So that your eardrums don't explode. I mean, our eardrums. We're not just talking about the cedar of Lebanon here. We're not just talking about the shard building. God could just kind of go, (coughs) and there goes the shard building, and it'll live up to its name. But for us, I mean, how delicate does God have to get to speak to my ear or my heart or that mind that gets so busy full of things? How toning down does God have to get so that I can actually approach him? And I think about that one brief moment where Jesus just turned it up a notch with a million notches yet to go up on a mountain when three guys fell to the ground because they're like, whoa, he's glowing. That's kind of strange. You know, and, we, and, and we realize all Jesus did was just peel back a little bit. And Abram sees God. What would he see? How limiting would God have to make himself to be that, that seeable? How small would he have to make himself compared to his infinite? He goes, all right, come follow me. I'm not going to tell you anything but one thing. Take one step. I'll tell you the second when you get there. But you're going to have to leave all this behind, which he doesn't. We're aware of. And we really don't read that he's infinitely rich when he leaves. Matter of fact, we don't have a lot of information about his particular status other than he was living with his dad when he was 75. Um, But... We do know that somewhere in it, he wound up, instead of going where he would go, assumedly, or where God is ultimately ordained, which would be in essence a little bit north, but almost due west, he's going to take this extra thousand miles, and he's going to head up north, at plus, he's going to head up north through the area of Syria, and then head back down, which, by the way, I find really interesting, because when he chases the kings later, he chases them up in that area, and I wonder if his brother and others, if they were still around, helped by the point they could have if they were there. It's interesting because according to this, we read that he has a servant named Do You see that here. Now, Eliezer is from where? You tell me. Go ahead and blurt it out if you see it. Damascus. Now, where's Damascus? It's in Syria. And I tend to realize that it seems like this is a guy who's big on souvenirs. He tends to go to places and pick up a lot with him, including things in Syria. And then, of course, he'll head from Syria down to Canaan, and then from there down to Egypt. And when he takes, comes up with Egypt, he picks up another souvenir, this little cutie named Hagar, which we'll meet next week and, God willing, in the next chapter. I find that interesting because the reason, at least culturally, why you would offer a servant, well, first of all, you have no blood son. But you, I mean, this guy's got a lot of stuff. Because by the time we read this, we read that God had made him rich in everything. of what we read by the end of his life. That guy is really big financially. Someone's got to get it. His wife had already died by the end. He, he will outlive his wife. And actually, when he's in his hundreds, he's going to pick up another cutie and have a bunch more kids. This guy's, anyways, he's a hero in many ways. The, uh, in this, though, you, well, who do you take? You take your oldest servant. And your oldest servant would be the one you have the closest relationship, which means more than likely, and he has to be born in your house. So now, the idea is, now understand, this is not condoning anything. The idea is if a servant were bought were purchased. He was considered property, not a human being, sad to say. And with that, then, any children they had, if they actually had the child and put the child then on your wife's knee, that child would be considered your child, technically. Now, there's a good and a bad to it. Of course, there's a bad side in the sense this poor woman has just lost her child, although she actually still gets to raise the child. uh, So she has all the responsibilities. However, in that, the person that is the owner, the slave owner, or I should say the master... Has the responsibility of providing for him financially and, and protecting him. So he still has some of those responsibilities. And again, God is not condoning that, and so it's clear by the time we get to the law, he'll tell you kidnapping is a, is a, is a criminal offense. In fact, of mm-hmm. it's a capital offense. You kidnap anybody, and it's death for you. That's the way God sees it. In this, though, the reason I say that is is that if the oldest servant in his house, follow me on this, if the oldest servant in his house is from Damascus, I'm led to believe that he didn't leave with a lot of servants. Before, because if his older servant was from Damascus, I'd be more likely to think he picked him up when he was up in Syria. Does that kind of make sense? Now, for whatever that's worth, his name, and it's part of the beauty of it, is Eliezer El, like Eloha or Elohim means God. Itzar means help, and literally, his name means God, our helper, which is a really beautiful name when we see him later, when we'll read that God actually sends Abram's oldest servant. We'll have to assume it's this guy, if he's going to be his, at least at this point. Now understand what Abram's doing. He's on this beautiful journey. And again, we've and I won't develop a lot of it because we have to get into the text sooner or later. But again, we've talked about the four basic gods that people basically worshipped in any form of the Sumerian culture basin. You know, gods of provision and or production and provision and protection and pleasure. And we've already seen Abram. And again, we'll see that Abram will build four altars in his life. We've seen three of them now. We've seen the one that was that just started, you know, and then from there down to between Bethel and Ai, where he'll build his second. And it's a very short period of text, because that only just gets us through chapter 12, the first seven verses. And in each of those times, we read that God is actually going to encounter, or we see that with that. The first time God, he encounters him, the first time again is in his calling to leave. The second time, that is actually right there in uh in chapter 12, verse 6, and we'll see that again, where God speaks to him and says, Look, and I'm your God, I am going to give you this and your descendants, and he builds an altar, first altar. And then with that, he'll go south between Bethlehem and I, he builds a second altar, and at that second altar, he'll head south down, again, remember, through the Negev desert into Egypt. And you have to realize that God's not just the baby-making God, the God who gives you purpose, but he's also the God who provides for you. And it's interesting, he's gone through that. Then he built a third altar you know, where he's been now in Hebron. And, and that particular altar, we recognize he's got to go and he's had to go rescue his, his uh, nephew, if you remember, Lot. And you see, okay, well, God has to be my protection. And he's just come back with this and he's delivered now. This and his over 300 servants have come back with all of these people, all of the goods. Everything goes back. Lot in his insanity goes back to Sodom after that rescue. And that just amazes me. And he's had this amazing encounter with two kings that are very, very different. The king, of course, Melchizedek. We don't read where in the world he came from, where he's going. We just read that he's this amazing guy who actually brings out bread and wine for everyone we read. And I wonder if the king of Sodom partook in that. And, and with that, then, he blesses him. Now, versus the king of Sodom that thinks, hey, look, at I need my people. I need my taxes. I need my people to be bakers and candlestick makers, you know, and, 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 and my army, and you know, I need the people that are going to be my cooks and my perfumers, and the, so I can get the best fields I need these people. Just give me the people you can keep the stuff. And Abram says, look, at, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I won't, I'm not going to take anything from you, because I don't want you to think that in any way you made me rich. And you think, well, Abram did really well. And then God shows up again, and this is his fourth time. And, and I think this is really fascinating. Because the way that God mentions it, so, so follow me up for a second. We had 12, verse 1, where God appeared the first time. And he said, get out. And then again, in 12, verse 7, I'm sorry, where God appears. And it says, listen, the Lord appeared. And that's the word we'll see. The word means to see. And it means to be visible. And he says, look, it's your sentence. I'll give this land. And then the third time, it just says in chapter 13, verse 14, after he and Lot split, the Lord says to Abram, hey, look, I'm going to give you anything. You just look around. It's all yours. Just walk in. I'm going to give it. And so twice he's visibly seen something, once he's heard, and then we get to this text, and you go, "What in the world is this?" Look at fifteen verse one. Did you kind of see the oddity in it? Here it is. It says, "After these things, the word of the Lord God came, or the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision." Okay. I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, when a word comes, what do I need to see? But the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. Well, what did he see? Well, that's a really bizarre thought to me because for what it's worth, in verse 4 again, it says that the word of the Lord came to him and then in verse 5 that he brought him outside. Is there a tangible aspect to this? I mean, why didn't it say the word of the Lord came to him speaking in the middle of the night? And he woke up and said, whoa, I'm hearing a voice. Is that you, Lord? What did he see in the midst of this when God says, hey, look at I'm your shield, stop worrying. And that's what he says here. And I start to think, well, wait a minute. Abraham has built his third altar, and in that third altar, God's like, look at, I want to remind you here, you're safe. You're, you're safe with me. Now, I, I've learned this. Now, I don't know how many of you are kind of fighters. Now, maybe some of you were, maybe some of you weren't. I've learned, though, that sometimes the biggest problem isn't the fight itself, it's afterwards, especially if you've fought somebody that has a lot of friends. Because if you've kind of gotten a fight with, with somebody that kind of, especially if they think, this is my posse, this is my gang, and you like, boom, and you're like, okay, so much for you. And then he's thinking, well, when you lay awake at night thinking, uh-oh. Which, you know, a guy like that that gets humiliated in front of his buddies, so to speak, is, is, often has a tendency to get revenge, and it usually comes multiplied. And, and I, I think that's and the only reason I say well, at least I'm trying to fit it in my own life. And I look at this, and I think Abraham just went, and he took on four kings who took down giants on their way in, if you remember, or five kings. And, and it's all of this stuff that he's taken, all these people that just seem like they, they were all, in one manner or another, mentioned as giants. And Abram comes in there with his trained servants, whatever that means. And they're sort of trained for war, though we've never read that have ever fought a war. And boom, off they go, and they take everything, and they get everything back, and everything's kind of back in its place. And Abram's back in his house, the dust settles, and you almost get the uh-oh. Okay, we taking down the kings, but what happens when they regroup? And, and and the reason I say that is that there is this kind of push and pull that we're gonna see in these first few verses with Abram, that which by the way, I hope it brings you as much encouragement as it does me. And the reason is is that though Abram kinda of takes a little bit of ground in faith, it seems like there's a bit of a dance. You know, you kinda of do the couple steps and then you kinda of go back a little bit and then you a go more steps and you go look down a little in the back then, maybe and I think I got it and God says, Cool, you're right for that and he's like, ah! No, and and that's what we did with Abram. And then God says, "Look at this guy's going to be called a father of faith," and he's kind of doing, in essence, the faith cha-cha at this moment, you know. And, and I and I love that about him because God doesn't paint this guy as if he was so perfect that we're like, "There's no way I could be this." No, I mean the first thing God said, remember in the beginning, is look at leave because I'm going to make you a nation so huge you're not going to be able to handle this. I mean, it's going to be so beyond your comprehension. And it gets to this point now, and the difference between this moment and then, to be honest, is the same problem I get in my cha-cha, and that is time. When God says he's going to do something, I kind of assume that the word now is in his tone, and it's not always the case. You know, it's like, I'm going to make you a great nation. Like, Abram's going to wake up tomorrow and it's like, you know, Sarah goes, you won't believe this, but I'm pregnant with a thousand children, you know? Well, what would that do to her, you know? You think about it, that's bed rest plus. You know, we've got a harness and a winch, and we are got, you know, we've got a, she's out at the boatyard ready to launch her kids, you know? And we think, come on, now's good. And, and all I know is that 13 years before Abram's 100, this guy Hagar, well, this guy Hagar, Hagar's son, Ishmael is going to be born because he's 13 years older. So, and so that means at 87, the next chapter is going to take place. He left at 75, which means somewhere between 75 and 87, this is where we're at. Though so we don't have a timestamp, I just know that in the next chapter he'll be 87 by the time it's done. So that means somewhere. Let's just assume he's okay. So, so maybe maybe 10 years have passed. But, I mean, which one of you, if God were to say, hey, look it, I use you to touch the world. You think, well, awesome. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and all kinds of people are going to get saved. And you wake up tomorrow and there's a riot. And you go, wow, well, maybe that's, you know, and you go out there and you get mugged and looted. And you go, excuse me, wait a minute. I thought you were going to use me to touch the world, not pay for the world, you know. And, and, and guys like, but, but did I say Now? And he just, I mean, mind you, he came back from a great victory and he's sitting there and he's kind of, and I just kind of get the idea that for God to have to tell him, look it, I'm your shield at this moment. I kind of get the idea that Abram kind of got all kind of el macho and then kind of backed down to somewhere right around, you know toto at this point you know he's kind of just backing off and he's you know there was that point we kind of came in like rambo and now he's kind of like olive oil waiting for Popeye to show up you know oh bye, bye. And, and i just i look at this and god goes look at and he shows up and somehow he shows up in a vision whatever that means though god doesn't even tell us all we know is a voice comes and he sees it now that would be really strange until i get to john one Because in John 1 it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I go, well, wait a minute, God's a Word? How does that work? And then we read, the Word was manifest among us, and we've seen it. And John says in 1 John 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. And it was manifested, and I stared at it, and I touched it. And I want to write this so that you could have fellowship with me and truly my fellowships with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I write this so that your joy would be full. And I just see John going, I smelt God. I touched God. I stared at God. And it was His Word manifest. And somehow here His Word is manifest. And this is His message. Hey, stop freaking out. Which I don't know if I were able to read in this, I'd be like, can you ask this part of the text? It's kind of sweet, but it, but it shows the chicken I really am. Um, God's like, no, because part of my encounters with you, part of this beautiful journey you're on to discover who I am, is the God that has to show up at these moments. Hey, I, I recognize. First of all, for God to do this, you need to recognize he's obviously sensitive enough to be aware of these moments. I mean, we don't read anywhere that Abram stuck any signs out that all of a sudden everything says, keep out, no trespassing. And he's got his guys sort of standing there with his automatic. Well, what do you have in those days? Automatic, you know, bow and arrows. Anyways, you know, just got arrows ready to go. You know, and, and that, we just read somewhere on all this somewhere. We don't even read when, day or night or whatever, but just somewhere. And if the Lord of the Lord came to Abram and got to say, hey, I realize you're freaking out right now. And I want you to know, I'm your shelter. That's the idea of being a shield. I, I, I mean, there are certain things we freak out from. Some are obvious threats. And by the way, I've learned that the most of the things we seek to dodge really have never happened. And often won't. Have you learned sometimes you could live your whole life in fear of the what-ifs? I tend to be the opposite. I'll drive you crazy because I'm kind of the Pollyannic individual of the, of the family. So I, I'm like, well, why don't we try playing a different what-if game? What if we play the, the best-case scenario? Well, because it sounds more ridiculous until you are a man of faith. Because you're like, well, what if that bus comes out of control and runs us over right now and we all die? Like, well, at least we die and we stand before the Lord. I'm like, well, what if that thing's full of people that really want to know Jesus and it stops right here and someone comes out and says, what must I do to be saved? And they're like, well, that's nonsense. It's scriptural. That happens at times. Why not pray for it? I'm like, you know, how many, find how, how many times in scripture do you find someone gets run over by a bus? Thank you very much. So. With all that in mind, God shows up and he's like, hey, hey, I I know you're kind of freaking out. I I know that. And By the way, do you read God rebuking him for it? Do you read anywhere? God's like, what's wrong with you? You're a man of faith. I'm going to write you up. Do you realize the press I'm going to give you later for this? Behave yourself. You're embarrassing me. I already gave you this big write-up. So he's like, look, I know you're freaking out. And because you're freaking out, you need to know, and this is the cool part, God doesn't Notice, he doesn't develop the situation. That's what we normally do when we try to comfort someone, don't we? You're like, you know the problem, Clyde? Well, it's not really that bad. You know, it's, it's not, I, I, I know that you're freaked out about this bill, but the truth be told, maybe we can make installments. Or And this isn't prophetic. I don't know what's going on in your life, Clyde. Like, um, we'll be taking a special collection for Clyde later. Uh, you know, I know the things that, you know, I, I, I know that that relationship's gone awry. But don't worry, she'll be okay. Or you, you know, we, t- we try to downplay the situation. God never even touches the situation. Have you noticed that? That's really not the issue. God's like, look, stop freaking out I am. That's, that's the issue. Your eyes are in the wrong place. I've said it before, but for the purpose of clarity. I can take my fist on a day like this. It doesn't, you don't have to worry about it. In London, you have to take special days to do this because you have to have a son. But if I took my fist, I can hold it up like this and block the entire sight of the sun. And that doesn't make my fist bigger than the sun. It just means that I'm holding closer to it. My perspective is that it's so close to me, I really can't see much beyond it. And I find it interesting because it tells us to cast our cares before the Lord. And it's like if I'm embracing my problem, it really does look big. But the moment I throw it down before God, it's like, "Whoa, it's big, it's scary, it's ah! <laughs> Oh, it's kind of tiny compared to you. And the Lord is looking saying, hey... I know you're freaked out. I know you're, I know things are scary, but I, I I, am your shield. That's the point here. He doesn't say you can make it. He doesn't say you can be a better you and here's self help 12-step or 15-step or 100-step program or whatever, or even two steps. I mean, that's what Ammon's doing. It's a two-step. One forward, one back, one forward. And God's like, look it. I am, I am. The moment you resolve the I am, you're going to be okay with this, and I'm your shield. But then he starts hinting at the last part of Abram's journey. Because if Abram has already had to discover that God is his production, and God is his provision, and God is his protection, how does he learn what it means for God to be his pleasure? Because I've learned, at least in my walk with Christ, as I watch so many people, so few people in the world have ever really reconciled God as their pleasure. So what we teach the world is God is for saving and the world's for fun. Hey, we'll get to church. Oh man, it's two hours. If we don't complain about a three-hour movie. We just get more popcorn. Well, if we need to serve popcorn in the back, if that helps, <laughs> as long as you help us sweep in the end. But isn't it amazing? That's like we'll drive four hours to see a show if we think it's well-performed. But it's like, man, I don't know if I can get up and get to church. You know. And then I'm not trying to complain about it. The point is how easy it is for us to try to make other stuff. And that's what. And by the way, we teach that in. In youth group, it's like you know what we're gonna do. We're gonna have our fun. It's dodgeball, and we're gonna whack each other in the head with balls, and we're gonna totally get in the flesh as we yell and scream and trash talk, and then we're gonna talk about being kind for five minutes, so that we make sure that we still call the Christian. And I'm trying to pick on all of that, but it happens, and the kids kind of go, hmm. Okay, there's the fun that gets us in, and we get, and then we kind of have to do the necessary evil of the Bible study. And then you get to college, and when you get to college, you're like, well, ditch the tough part. Let's just go, and it's all dodgeball, or whatever it is, right? And then you watch people, because at the end of it all, they're like, wow, I'm really missing something in my life, but I got all the dodgeball I can possibly handle. I'm like, I can see it. Your face is like this, as your spirit is. And God goes, look, and I'm so much more than your shield i'm your reward i'm your pay. and i realized if i were locked in something and i was stuck in a biosphere protected from every germ known to mankind <laughs> and anything else that's out there the issue wouldn't even be necessarily that It'd just be well who do i get to be with i locked in with my family there's a part of me that thinks well, this could be good God's like, look, if I'm going to be your shelter, I need you to know who you're sheltering with. You're sheltering with me. I'm your reward. And that's the journey you're going to be on now for the next nine chapters. Well, and then some... And Abram goes, but, but, excuse me, I, I kind of recognize that, but that whole first thing we started with to establish it hasn't really been, how do I really trust the rest? God, I mean, we started this whole thing with you saying, look, and I'm the baby, God. I'm going to give you babies. It's been some time, enough time for babies, and there are no babies. And and if you'll pardon me, but as a man, there's a lot more to not having children than just not having children. It's also, it's not only not only not having children, but it's having a wife that doesn't have children, and that's it's own it's its own monster. And I mean I mean this from other stories I've been told, and you know. Honestly, all like, oh, you give me, because I'm married to contentious to start with, and we have no kids. And somewhere she kind of gave up the thing and started ordering from the senior menu, and now we kind of got that whole new hope in our heart. It's been a while, and she's getting back to that hopeless state she was starting in back when. And how do I how do I go to her now and say, oh, God's got a whole new promise for us, when you haven't seen the first one come to pass. And you know what? There's a logical aspect to that, isn't there? God's like, look it, I I think you're forgetting who I am. And that's what I love about God, is he just doesn't develop a lot of the other stuff, and he doesn't go, look it. You know, I have yet to write the scriptures about my ways not being your ways, but they aren't. I've learned my ways are often now, unless it's payment, punishment, then it's as late as possible. And he's like, look it, can I help you out, God? I've got this Eliezer, God. Isn't that good enough? Because this makes a little bit more sense. And he's been kind of fulfilling the role of this. And God's like, look it, I don't need your help with my promises. If I needed your help with my promises, it wouldn't be a miracle. And here's the funny part. God doesn't need us to be any part of the equation of a miracle other than the recipient. And that's a pretty wild thought. It's like, you know, 99% God doing awesome stuff and 1% I kick in and boom, something good's going to happen. And God's like, you know what? I use people in backslidden states. I use people who didn't like me. I use people who were my enemies. And it's like, I'd love you to enjoy the ride. You don't, if you really surrender to me, you don't go kicking and screaming. That's part of the fun of it. You really if you have less scars in it. But in this, I don't need your help. And for the next two chapters, it's basically compromising with God. It's the compromise cha-cha. It's like, look it, you know, we could really, you know, it starts with, he's like, you know, you just said, you know, children, this is kind of a child, kind of, it works. And God's like, no, I actually have a bigger miracle in mind, but you aren't even hopeless yet. I need to get you to the place where the only thing that can happen is a miracle. And nobody wants to be put in that place. Do you want to be put in that place? Or well, it's like, you know what, really, what I, I, it isn't just that I, I would like a miracle now, it's I, I need a miracle now. And God's like, perfect, he's been dead for four days. This is a really good time to raise him. And you're like, why didn't you show up earlier? And God's like, because then it wasn't as much of a miracle. Now it's a big miracle. And you go, oh, you're bigger than I thought. Why didn't you get up in the middle of the storm when things got tough? Why did I have to wake you up and say, don't you care, we're dying here. Jesus's is like, now you realize I'm the only, the only hope. I'm just one of the hopes. I'm the only hope. And Jesus looks like, where's your faith? I can tell you where it's been. It's been in you. It's been in Peter. It's been in James and John. They've been on this. And you, you think they're the experts because they've been rowing this boat since they were kids on this lake. And it's like, you forget, I made this lake. I'm the expert. So look at, can you, I mean, next chapter, what will happen is the wife will jump in and she'll go, well, you know, he did say from your body, but he didn't necessarily say from mine. And you go, okay, we're going to help God with that. And Abraham, being an awesome man of God, holy and sincere, goes, Sounds awesome. Where is she at? And I, I just think about it and I think how easy it is to backslide on situations where God gives you a beautiful promise. And In verse 4 it says, Now the word of the Lord came to him and goes, No, this one's not your heir. This isn't it. This isn't it. This is way too easy. When it's going to come from your own body. Now that's what we're going to do here. And so then God says, Come on. Come on outside with me for a minute. Now, it tells us he brought him outside. Now, I have no idea how this works. How a voice brought him outside. It's almost like, follow the sultry sound of my voice. Follow, him. Come on, I'm in this way. Or is it, again, it's the whole thing's a vision. And then again, we have the second, or if it's the same, we really don't even know. It's just as the word of the Lord came to him. Apparently, maybe this is the second time in the chapter God's interfacing with the guy. And he goes, come on. And he's like, where are we going? He's going, I want you to go to my office. Because your office is small, so okay. So, wow, you got a big office. Hey yeah, guys, that's that's not I, that can't even contain me. But I want you to look up for a second, because your world right now is this small. Your problem, it looks so huge to you, but really is just this small. And I, I think you need a bigger perspective for a minute. Can you come to my office? All right, okay. Take me whatever way you need to go. Am I am going. <laughs> wow! And he goes. God goes. Just look up. All right. All right. What do you see? Uh, sky. That's like good. Okay, we're on the same page. Um. What else? Okay. Look a little closer. What do you see? I see stars. That's like all right. So you, so you see stars. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Did you put them there? No, no, I did. <laughs> I, I put them all right with right there. That whole little you know saucepan thing that won't make sense until people later on invent pans. That um, I did that. You've been connecting dots uh, for so long. You've been connecting those dots for so long, Abram. And you don't even you've forgotten who put them up there. And you're connecting the wrong dots, buddy. Now look at those. Now. <coughs> Why don't you count them? What? Yeah, why don't you try to count them? Like, Ruthie, when she was younger, and it was only a couple of years ago, sat down next to me and she says, Dad. Usually that tone usually gets a uh-oh in there. Dad, yeah, yeah, honey. Can you count to a thousand? Yeah, I'm pretty confident I can do that. But can you start now? Like, no. Are you sure you can count to a thousand? Yeah, I'm sure I can count to a thousand. Why don't you count? Because with all due respect, honey, you would get bored and I would be a tremendous waste of my time. I didn't say it that way. Of course, I, I was like, hey, look, something shiny. Oh, okay, good. But I mean, you, you, could you imagine if, if a child sat down next to you and said, no, no, really, I'll wait. I'll wait here. And you're like, oh, are you kidding me? That's insane. I think, oh, it's kind of nutty because um, according to at least science, as much as we know, they say that at any particular moment, if you look out in the night sky, now this isn't necessarily London because we're usually covered in something, but if you could see in an open night sky, you will see 10 million stars. That's what they think. At least that's what you know the experts of things like Wikipedia and Google and askascienceman.com think. That's what they, they all kind of seem to come up with the same number. They tend to think there are over 100 billion, uh, but you'll see anywhere between 10 and 100 million in any particular given moment if you're actually able to see it. How ridiculous. I mean, that means somebody actually kind of went and did that kind of cross-section of they went and took a shot of, okay, well, there's part of it now. How much can a person actually see? And we'll take a, you know that and we'll kind of multiply it by the amount of squares it could possibly be. And we look at that and we kind of come up with that number. And the whole point of it isn't God says, now, if you, had, if you knew the number, that's how many children you're going to have. He just says, if you can count that, well, then you're going to be able to count your own. Well, that's a pretty radical thought. Now, What if God just did that the way He did it with me? Um, Two years ago, the Lord brings us to London, brings me to London, and um, sitting with a pastor, talking about situations that he's going through, and really praying and seeking to love on him. And the Lord brings me to Greenwich, and. And he, and he sits me down. And if you've ever been to Greenwich, there is this place. That's like the Queen's house. She doesn't live there anymore. But uh, it's a really lovely place. And in the backyard, there are these, of course, it's just this gigantic park that ends up where you get me- Greenwich means time. It's up at the top there. And you sit down on these, uh, these park benches and you just look out at this big open field, basically, with trees here and there and so forth. And I'm sitting there all right, Lord, my soul is stirred. You know those moments where you kind of feel like, I better sit down. Lord's probably trying something. And he just pulls off this veil. And this veil he pulls off, it's like millions and millions of people who have no hope. I mean, just hopeless. And it's uncountable. And I, I feel like God grabbed my throat with one hand and my heart with the other and squeezed both of them until my head started to pop, if that makes sense. And, and I looked. I'm like, well, what? What do you want me to do? And, and it's like you ever those moments where you can almost just not even hear a voice. You could just almost hear him smile. Does that make any sense to you? And I'm like, well, then then I'll go. And I, I at Hempstead Heath, we can get up to the top of it. and You can look and you can basically sort of see a panorama of the city and do the same thing at Primrose apparently, but you might get mugged there. And um, <coughs> You get mugged anywhere if you're not careful, I suppose. And, and, you, know, and you look up at the top of that, and, and I look at that, and I, I think of this verse every time. And it's like, if you can count that, and the whole idea of it is, Abram, you can't possibly number the fruitfulness I have, I've planned for you. And you're like, but, but I've had these other great moments, I think. I mean, I just kicked some serious king. And come back from that. I'm a little nervous now about the retribution of it. But, and God's like, you know what? Do you really think that that victory was the biggest victory I have planned for you? Like, If that was the biggest thing, why don't I just kill you now and take you home? I mean, you're going to sort of live off the royalties of that for the rest of your life? Why don't we actually go back into the battle? We've got a lot more to do here, buddy. As a matter of fact, the biggest, one of the biggest things I'm going to do is going to be beyond 13 years plus from now because it's going to be the point where you're going to lay down that son I haven't even given you yet. You don't even know that's written in the script. I have written in the script. I know what's going to happen, but you don't. But you're going to have to reconcile this before this point, and you'll never even make it there. And so I, I, I look at this, and I think, God, looking. And what's interesting is is that He's God doesn't argue with him. He doesn't kind of play the game of let's just kind of go through the minutiae and try to figure out where your problems are and, and what's wrong with you, you know? Because all Abram's really trying to do, if you think of it, is just trying to figure it out. Like any of us would. We're just trying to figure it out. I was like, okay, I get that. So look at what you just kind of need at this moment is a faith builder. And have you known that God does that a lot? It's like someone goes, help my faith. Lord, I feel like my faith's weak. God says, well, you know, if you had faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And you're like, that's, that's, the, that's your pep talk. That's it. I don't get it, you know. And I'm thinking of those moments where I tend to think, okay, apparently his methodology is a little different from prime. You know, I'm sort of beat up. I'm like all like nursing my ribs. I'm sitting in the locker room. I'm going, coach, they're trampling all over. us. My helmet's cracked in half. And he goes, well, oh, you know, if you play this play, we're going to win. And you're like, oh, what? We've done this play. Have we ever have done that play? Look at the cleat marks on my arm. Lamar's like, look it. You've forgotten who's in control of this. You've forgotten that I'm not just the coach, but I'm also the key player of this game. And I'm going to step out there, and we're going to take this thing, and I'm just asking you to come with me. I didn't ask you to go out there and do it. I'm asking you to do it with me, to come with me and follow me, follow me in this. And he says, look, it, if you could count the number of stars, <coughs> so he says, and count them if you're able, and so shall your descendants be. And then we read the verse that is quoted in Romans 4, Galatians 3, and in James 2. And that's that he believed God. And God said, you're right with me now. He accounted it or credited defined it as righteousness. And the word Zadik, the same word that's half of Melchizedek. And he looks and he says, you know what? You're trusting me is what makes you right with me. That's all there is to it. You're not going to be made right with me any other way. And it isn't like Abram earned anything here. And that's the whole point of Romans is if Abram actually did this by works, then he would have something to boast of, but he didn't. God gave him a promise. He trusted him minute, and said, all right, I'm going to make you. I'm going, you're right because of that. Because you trusted me, I'm going to make you right. You're right with me. The moment you trust with me, trust me, you're right with me. And then he goes, look it. What's the next part? It says, then he said, verse 7, look at the first two words he uses there. I am. Did you get it? you're missing, Abram, again, I am. I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who gave you the, that offers you the land. And then he goes, verse 8, and you think, well, wow, don't other people like Zechariah really get blasted for asking how on this? How is it that I will inherit this? I don't get it, Lord. Well, I understand what he's doing here because the whole point of it is God says, again, I'm going to give you this land. And other people live in this land. And if other people live in this land, Abram's kind of like, how do I know when this is going to happen? Because I, I get the idea that he's trying to figure out now there's a when involved in all this. I mean, up to this point, he's like, kids, I haven't had kids yet. I haven't had a single child yet. You said, no, I can't number them. I don't have one. Do you me, know, one was countable, and I don't even have that. And, and God's like, look, let's get back out there. Look at the stars. Don't forget who put them there. Don't forget who made them there. If I can make those stars and you can't count them, can't I make children for you so that you can't count? Can't I make you so fruitful you can't even imagine it? Are you sure on this? And he's like, well, then how am I know about this land thing? And all of a sudden you kind of goes, well, what, what's the sign that I'm going to need before we actually take this land? Because, <laughs> okay, if you're going to give me the land, I could probably really use a cue. You know, something, because it isn't like, I've kind of learned now, don't jump in it a little early, because if I jump in a little early, it's not a good idea. And, and so he's like, so how do I know? Well, what's the sign? And he gives us this beautiful sign, and this is what he does. He says, first of all, I, let's, let's get a recipe. Bring me some animals. And it looks like Abram already knows what to do with him. So he gets a goat. Well, first of all, he gets an ox or a, or a heifer, and then he gets a goat, and then he gets well. And if you kind of chase it all the way down, a ram—that's a male sheep—and then a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he cuts them all in half with the birds, and he's kind of got this walkway. You think, well, that's really gross. You got half a cow on one side and half a cow on the other. You got half a sheep on one side, half a sheep on the other. This big sea of blood in between. And then we read it doesn't even happen. And notice again God playing with the time thing. He's got to chase away the vultures, and then night hits, and it's like there's this time. It's like you imagine you cut all these animals and you sit there and it's like cricket, 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 and you've got remember you've got 300 plus servants. You've got all of these other people that are kind of looking at you thinking, what's this old coot doing? He's half an animal and sitting there by himself in a sea of blood between these wacky animals. He's just going to sit there going. I mean, what does Sarah I think at a moment like this? What is wrong with you? That was dinner. Half an animal. And then it's like, you know, and at first you're thinking, Well, the Lord told me, the Lord told me. An hour passes, the Lord told me. Vultures come out. Great, get oeing the vultures, okay. Uh, and the Lord I think he told me. And then four hours pass, I think the Lord told I'm pretty sure he told me. I mean, you know how that works. Is time is the issue here. And it says, All right, so look at now that we've done that, why would he do all the animals? Why not one? Because I realized, whether it be that you do it as a free will offering, which, by the way, all of these animals are offered, or a sin offering, all these animals are offered, the one thing I'm sure of is in a covenant, all of these animals are offered. It all depends on how wealthy you are. Now, the idea is quite simple. A covenant is something much more more binding. This is going to sound really strange to our culture, but actually when people made a promise, keeping it was really important. I mean, to the point where your word was your honor. And if you didn't keep your word, you had no honor in your community. You were a disgrace. And this is the way you did it. You took an animal to the greatest you can afford. You halved it, and you walked through with your side of the bargain. So if the idea was I was going to sort of mow Clive's lawn for three weeks, and Clive was going to pay me a certain amount of money... You know, And it was really that important because, let's say, you know, his future in-laws were going to show up and it really needed to look nice. We'd half an animal I'd walk through and say, all right, for the next three weeks, I'm going to cut your lawn. All right, that's the way it is. Once a week on this day, it's going to look really nice. And then Clyde's going to walk through it too and go, all right, well, here's the deal. After, you know, I'm going to pay you this certain amount of money, blah, blah, blah. And that's, you know, we're done. You're going to get paid that much. And the idea is that's a covenant. and It is so binding that if it is the case that I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may I be split in half like this. Now, we can fathom that, but what if you sat there for a second and just looked at that? I mean, looked at half animals, cut in half. Because you realize there is one covenant that God makes clear that's supposed to be this day that we actually, that is not just our covenant with the Lord, and it's the covenant of marriage. And you need to understand, I'm a big, big stickler for stay married. You're like, well, what if the situation is bad? Well, then let's let God kill your, your old husband, your old wife in the sense of killing the old person and give you a new person, make her a new creation and have a better marriage. But this is what Malachi says. He goes, God hates divorce because it covers people in violence. Well, could you imagine if you actually, this is what you did. You walk through this thing and you realize, look, if, if we're going to get married, this is a covenant now. Until we die, this is a covenant. And if I want to back out of this thing, this is what's going to happen to me. Well, God says, "Let me start it by saying this is our covenant now. Why does He do every animal? Because the idea is kind of simple to me. It doesn't matter where you're at. He's going to meet you there. Well that's only that covenant's only for the rich. He did it with a heifer. He goes all the way down to birds, because that's where you're so poor, all you can basically do is catch a bird. You usually get two. And what the God's looking at, and he goes, "Look, it. it doesn't matter whether you're the poorest or the richest. The bottom line is simple we're still going to get in this covenant together. i you like, ooh, I love that. I didn't come to him rich. I came to him not being able to afford birth. And I, by the way, I recognize that when Jesus went to um, his particular sacrifice, there's a certain amount of time a woman ceremonially unclean after she's given birth because blood's involved, of course. And then what happens is ultimately you offer your son you know, or your child and you basically sort of give a payment as sort of a sacrifice and say, because for my firstborn. <coughs> and you <coughs> offer the same thing. And when we read that Mary and Joseph at that moment were poor, obviously the king's, <coughs> excuse me, the magi haven't shown up because they offered two turtle doves, according to Luke, which tells me if they had enough money, they would have gotten a bigger animal. But that, they were poor at that moment, so that was all they could offer. After that point, obviously, these magi must show up. Here, God does it with every animal. And then it says, now look it, here's the deal. You're going to be strangers in a land that's not yours. 400 years, you'll actually be mistreated. Ultimately, they'll be there 430 years. That'll be the end of this book in the beginning of Exodus. For 400 years. And God says, here's a little riddle for you. You're going to be slaves for 400 years. I mean, beat up, horribly misused, horribly mistreated, and then you're going to come out really rich. And you go, that is a bit of a, that's, that's a, quite a riddle. That's exactly what God says in the scripture. You know what I love is when God says that, and, and he doesn't say, now figure that out. That would be, you know, and, and that's kind of how we play it because up to this point I kind of get the idea that faith, by the way, listen, if you listen to this, please listen as we're nearing the end. Faith doesn't demand you to connect all the dots. It just, it just asks you to trust them. I think a lot of the arguments we get in within, within Christendom are because we're trying to connect God's God never told us to. You're like, well, how do you reconcile this and this? I'm like, God never told me to reconcile. He told me to believe both sides. And you're like, well, how do you believe both sides? How is God fully man and fully God? I'm like, God... Works in 200%. I don't have to have an answer. Well, how could God fully be in co- control and give man a free choice? It's like, well, you know what? If from Scripture, I can find both. I'm just going to trust both dots. God never told me to reconcile them. And I really love the fact that God's just bigger than I can figure out. And here he's just not connecting dots. And he's okay with that. He's just trusting the fact that God says, look it, here's the deal. And it's interesting because if I do the math on all this, it makes sense because it'll be from Abram to Isaac to Jacob, to Levi. And Levi will be the one that will go into the area of, of Egypt. And then, and then I start following the line through and I realize that Levi will go to Kohath and Kohath will go from him to Amram and Amram will go to Moses. And Moses will be the fourth generation. Four generations in, four generations out. And God says, this is exactly the way I'm going to work it. Now why would he even give him that information? How, I mean, Abram obviously can't figure that out at this moment because what Abram was asking is, when do I get this land? And God says, follow it, four generations, 400 years, fourth generation out, I'm going to give you the land you go, oh, okay, I, I kind of get it. And then God does this beautiful thing at the end. It says, in this nation, I'm going to judge them. And you're going to go out with really, really good possessions. Verse 15, you, on the other hand, you'll be, you will actually die before that. He will actually die at 175, we'll be told. And then he says, in the fourth generation, you will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, the reason why God isn't having him take the land right now is because there's people here with a soft enough heart to take them. But there comes a day when this generation that will be there of Amorites will be so hard they'll never say yes to God. And God says, This is the time to take them. And it came to pass, verse 17, that the sun went down, now it was dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And then God made the covenant I'm going to give you this land. Why a smoking torch or a smoking oven and a torch? You've got these animals, remember, split in half. And it tells us where do they go? It goes between the pieces. Did you notice that there in verse 17? Well, what happens when a big smoking torch or oven passes through a bunch of stuff like that? It's all gone on the other side of it. So here's Abram kind of getting ready. He's going to walk through and say, here's my end of the bargain. I wanna, I'll follow you. I'll be faithful. I'll be a man of faith. You can write great stuff about me. I'll never doubt again. Those kind of things we say at those moments when we really need God's mercy and we're trying to bargain with them. Oh, God, I, I just need your forgiveness. I'll never do this again. And God's like, you have no idea. You, you can't bring that to the bargain table because you can't even do that. And God, I love the way he does this. He's like, okay, let's make the covenant. You ready for the covenant? God goes, I'll go first. All right? All right? I'm giving you the land. Abram goes, "All right. So where where the animals go? How am I supposed to walk through this? Some no more animals. I like the fact a fire will mop up the blood. It'll do the whole thing. The whole thing's just clean now. I was like, tumbleweeds blowing by. And I'm looking, he's looking, going. Hmm, there's nothing left. And God goes, that's the point, Abram. I just want you to follow me. I know you're imperfect. I know you're weak. I know you struggle. And the craziest part of the struggle is you're just trying to figure out instead of just trust. I know that. I entered into the relationship knowing all of that. But this relationship isn't based on your perfection or your pursuit because the truth be told, if it were, we'd be done a long time ago. This is about my faithfulness. Have you gotten the chapter yet? I am God speaking. I am, I am, I am. Because the moment you focus on you are, it's done. And God says, Look at I am. That's the point here. I am. I'm faithful. Now, for what it's worth, I challenge you to look at the book of Luke on your own time and realize when Jesus does this last cup, the cup of the covenant in the Gospel of Luke, because what he does is really interesting. He'll actually drink a cup earlier and say, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you later with my father. And then after dinner, it says, Then, after dinner, it says, Take this cup and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. And I go, well, either it isn't the fruit of the vine, because he said he wasn't going to drink it again, or he was lying, or there was Kool-Aid in it, or he isn't going to drink that cup. And I go, oh, I get it. Because the cup is a husband offering to his bride... Here's my end of the bargain, my faithfulness, my devotion, my protection, my provision. If you drink of it, you say yes. And then she says, well, here's mine, my purity, my commitment, my service. And he drinks it, and they're officially betrothed. But she's betrothed the moment she says yes to him. And even there, Jesus says, look at this, it'll never be about you. I'll let it be about you in my heart. But in your heart, let it be about me. And you'll have all the faithfulness you need. Now, that's no license to sin, but it sure is cause to celebrate. Because what I get out of that at the end is, God, thank you that you didn't make me walk through it because I realize the moment I walk away from the Lord, I am going to be torn in two. Because you can't serve two masters. But I also recognize that's my own choice, but God is not going to give up on me. He honors his word too much. And it tells us that his gifts and callings are irrevocable. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work? That he's given you his Holy Spirit the moment you said, yes, it's the Spirit of his Son and he's adopted you and he will never disown you? He says, I've called you by name. I've redeemed you. You're mine, says the Lord. You're mine. Jesus says, whoever the Father gives comes to me and no one is able to snatch him out of my hand. Remember that hand? Shaka, that measured the universe. Who's going to be able to reach into that hand and get any? Now, my question to you as we go to prayer. Have you said yes to follow him? And if you are, are you in a place today where you really need prayer about the issue that God's saying, Look, I'm your shield? Have you forgotten that? You're caught up in the trouble of the moment and you've forgotten how big our God is. Are you doing the faith, Cha Cha? You know, God, I'm super faithful for this moment, but now I'm going to step back, and I don't know, I can't figure you out. And God says, did I tell you figure me out? I said, follow me. There's a difference. I know I made your mind. I know what you can not handle. That's why I haven't told you everything. I've told you the simple things, and you can't get that. I'm your shield. Could you figure that one out? Get that shield. God, shield. Hard time with that. God says, I know. So why are you trying to figure out the other thing? Because this is what you need right now. I'm everything you need. And that's where Abram's going to end up. It's like, I'm everything you need. And until you get that, you're going to do the cha-cha for the rest of your life. And you'll realize, I've never gone anywhere because I'm too busy doing this the whole time. Or however the cha-cha works. Forgive me for those of you who are professional dancers here. But you know, it's like, gosh, I feel like this is supposed to be a walk. And God's like, well, it would be a walk if you actually just trusted me and followed. And I'm like, but I, I can't figure this out. And God goes, cool, you can't figure it out. Well, then follow me. I have to figure it out if I'm responsible for my universe. But if he is, then I'm just responsible to keep my eyes on him and keep walking. And it's like, wait a minute, scientifically I shouldn't be walking on this water. God says, get your eyes off the water, keep it on me or you will not be. Lastly, listen. The Bible tells us that we're all in need of saving. And the reason is that our sin has separated us from the living God. Joel told us whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, whoever believes on me will have everlasting life because what we have at the moment is death. That's John 6, 47. So either you can not accept the gift of God because you can't figure out everything, but you can recognize he died on a cross to pay for all our sins and rose again and offers us new life. You can try to redecorate that dead person you are or according to 2 Corinthians five seventeen, it says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Which one do you want? But he offers you that gift now and he offers, will you follow me? You don't have to know it all. And if you're anything like me where the mind kind of works pretty quick sometimes, other times I'm still working on tying my shoes. God says, you know, it is really, really relieving to trust, to trust in a God who's bigger. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the privilege of this time, for this beautiful chapter. Lord, I, I just pray right now. I, I, I my heart is broken, Lord. And I just want to pray for those. I mean, genuinely, as I think of those whose marriages are in crisis, and I just pray, God, that you would right now bring them back to the place, Lord, where they can throw it down before you and see how you're bigger than their impossibilities. And that you would create a new thing, better, Lord. If you could raise the dead, you could fix any marriage. God, I pray for forgiveness. I pray for for your miracles for people that seem so hopeless and I just want to thank you Lord that sincerely I can't think of a time where I've loved my wife more and been so thankful Lord I, I, I thank you for bringing us to this beautiful country and in bringing us here Lord how I really believe you've blessed our marriage in ways that are far beyond even where we were when we left I want to thank you for our amazing children. And I want to thank you, Lord, that I believe you want to save every person in London and in the UK and in this world. And and I believe you're not going to do something that's little, but you are going to ravish this country with your grace. And I beg you to do so. And I pray for the souls of this precious country, God, that you would save. God, I just pray for that battle that we would have inside, Lord, where we would say I'll follow you if I can figure you out and God I know that if you put us on the journey of discovery trying to figure you out sounds like such a futile and silly thing but Lord you will reveal to me who you are in ways that I can trust you and have the peace that I need you told me even if I came to you weary and heavy laden you would give me rest that's a promise you keep it's a covenant you make with me. and I pray right now Lord for every believer first if there be Situations, Lord, we've allowed to come big, Lord, of things that have just so taken a hold of us like a fist in our face. We can't see your Son. Lord, we want to cast it before you right now and pray that you would shine upon us the way you so hungrily desire to do so. I also just want to pray, Lord God, right now for anyone here, if there be any who or many who have not accepted the gift of your Son and right now recognize their need. I'm going to just pray a simple prayer. and. If you've never accepted the Lord, or if you have and you just want to renew that with uh, the Lord right now, I'm going to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen, not just repeat, because I want you to hear what's being said. And then at the end of it all, if you do agree, I ask you to give a confident amen. And here it is. God, I, I don't know everything. I don't claim to know everything. I'd like to know everything. I recognize. I'm not even capable of that. But I also recognize, Lord, there are some things I do know. And one thing I know is that I'm imperfect. I've done wrong. And if you really are the righteous judge you claim to be, then you have the right to punish all wrongdoing. If you're going to be righteous, you need to do that. That's only, that's just right. And I recognize that you have the right to punish me for every wrong I've ever done. But I also recognize your scripture tells me that you love me and you don't want to spend eternity away from me. And that you'd rather die than live without me. So you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross on my behalf, so that all of the sins of the world, mine included, could be paid in full there at the cross. And if it be so torturous as you've clearly made you clearly shown in Scripture, well then then obviously everything's been paid. And that that's pretty simple to understand. And I recognize that you've proved that it was enough and acceptable by raising from the dead. And you don't just offer me absolution from where I came from. You also offer me the gift of new life. And that gift of new life is shown at the empty tomb where you revealed yourself and showed yourself and how you continue to manifest to others. Lord, whether that be through vision or through word, whatever the case is, even right now, you've spoken to my heart and, and I recognize this need. And you have this ridiculously kind offer of offering me innocence for my guilt and life for my death and though i may not understand everything and i'd love to but though i may i do understand that you give me a choice and i'm responsible then with whether i receive this gift or not and so right now i humbly come before you and i ask well actually i just say yes i I say yes i say yes to this gift of jesus I mean, if you're going to offer me innocence, why would I not take it? If you're going to offer me your love, I would gladly receive it. If you offer to make me a new creation, I, I say, please be my guest. But in doing so, would you please now set me on that journey to discover you each day as to everything I need. And I pray that I would crave you like you deserve to be craved. And so I say, yes. And Jesus, if you really want to be the Lord of the ship of my life, then please take the mast, Lord, be my guest. But in that now, be the architect of my reinvention. And Father, if you really are offering to pour forth your Spirit upon me, even though I may not fully even understand what that means, but somehow in that I'm adopted by, by God, the Creator, well, I say, yes, be my guest to, adop- to adopt me. And in doing so, Be the Father I need, the love I need, my shield, and my reward. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, if you agree.